Thanks for joining me, kids. Can I get two volunteers who'd be willing to act out a little bit what I'm going to talk about? Okay. Everyone over here, apparently. Okay. Let's get the two brothers to come up, because actually that might work really well. So come on up, just stand in front of me, and I want you to, one of you stand over here, and one of you stand here, okay? Now, sit down, Theo. Thanks for coming. Now, brothers, I want you to imagine, it's just another day at home, and your dad comes home with a new toy, or a remote control car, don't you want to play with it? And so, of course, you guys are super excited because it's a new remote control car. And you think, man, let's play. Let's play together. But then you figure, uh-oh, you don't want to play together. You want to play by yourself, right? And you start fighting. And because you're the big brother, you're stronger. You snatch the remote control from your little brother, right? And you're like, yeah, now I got it. And little brother starts getting very sad. And he tries to try to fight back, try to grab it back. But when I start to get bigger. Yes. One day you will be taller and you will beat him down. It will happen. And then you try to get it back from him. And your brother pushes you to the ground. Oh! But then you steal the room. And you start crying because you're so sad. All right, let me have that for a second. Um, now, okay, kids, if this happened, what should Big Bro do? Should he go, ha ha, you lose, I'm bigger than you, you don't get to play with it. Should he do that? No. No? You should hand it over? What else should you do? Be a bro. You should hand it over? What else? What else should he do? Be kind, yes. Share. Share, yes. You're making your parents look really good right now, by the way. Did you know that? Those are all the correct answers. Right? So, <laughs> so one, so kids, if this ever happened, here, I'm going to turn it off, okay? If this ever happened, right, you wouldn't just stand over your friend or your sibling and, and laugh at them, right? You would, you, you should feel bad that, your, your, your friend is crying or your brother is crying and you should help them up, say sorry, give them a hug, and, and just like you said, give it to them to play with. Kids, it's always cool to say sorry. Did you know that? You're going to reach, some of you might even be that age where you're like, oh, geez, pastor, no one at school talks like that. No one says sorry. It's not cool. Kids don't talk like that. But let me tell you, it's always cool to say sorry because you know what? Sometimes you're the one who gets hurt or someone's mean to you and you would want the other person to say sorry to you, right? And make things right? Yeah? And what God says is that because he has loved us so much that even when we've been mean, that he forgives us and that he loves us, and that gives us the power, the ability to go and say sorry to other people when we've been mean to them. So it's always cool to say sorry. Remember that, okay? And you can do it because of how much God loves you and forgives you. Well, thanks for joining me. I know you want to play with this car, but I'm going to play with it. Sorry. I'm not going to share.
We're looking at this text today that has this big focus on reconciliation. It's a word we like as Christians, and yet it's very challenging for us. And let me give you a little bit of context for Paul's words in this passage in 2 Corinthians 5. Paul himself is being judged immensely. One of the themes of 2 Corinthians is him defending his authority as an apostle of God. He's being criticized, he's being judged, and he's preaching this countercultural message that many people object to, and that in 1 Corinthians he himself says is a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to non-Jews. The Jews expect a Messiah that comes with great power, showing forth signs, and the Greeks judge this Messiah, this Jesus, according to Greek philosophy, according to Greek wisdom. And so Paul is is defending not only the message of Jesus, the gospel message, but he's also having to defend himself as the messenger of Jesus because people are, are, again, giving accusations against him as a person as well. And that's why we we hear in 2 Corinthians this word commending himself um, at least eight times. And again, it's a theme in in this book. And it's really used, this idea of commending himself. Um, and and it, he doesn't say that in, really anywhere else with that kind of emphasis in any other book in the Bible. So again, it's in this context where we hear Paul say he's not sharing all of this really to commend himself. But as it says in this verse, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. Again, there were those who criticized Paul and the Christian, early church Christians based on outward appearances. Now, it's not just about literally appearances, about looks, or about the way you appear on the outside. Paul says later on in verse 16 that they were not, they were not just being judged by outward appearances, but also judged, in his words, according to the flesh. So to be judged according to the flesh is to mean to be judged according to the world's standards, according to the world's values and priorities. And often those are are sinful and against God's design of the way things are meant to be. And so Paul says, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. So he's, he's really admitting, confessing himself that he once looked upon Christ, judged Christ and his message according to the world's standards and thought it foolishness, thought it a stumbling block himself and that he needed to change the way he saw things, that he needed to stop seeing Christ and his ministry and his message in a fallen and broken way. I think we can all relate to this context in which Paul's at. I think many of us can understand how it feels to be judged according to a worldly standard. Many of us have felt judged by not being good-looking enough, not being smart enough, not being successful enough, not being eloquent enough, not being spiritual enough, not being good enough. The list could go on, right? There's so many ways in which we can feel judged by others, either overtly through their words or in a more subtle way, implied that we are not as good as them. And as Christians, sometimes we get judged for sometimes not being conservative enough in our theology or social issues or not progressive enough in our theology or social issues. Or we can, as Christians, be judged as simply stupid for believing that the Word of God is actually from God, relevant for our life, 
trustworthy, that God speaks to us through it. I mean, I know that for myself, before I became a Christian, I I thought not just Christians, but all religious people as literally stupid, not bright enough apparently to realize the stupidity of believing in the supernatural and in God. So even though we can all relate to that feeling of being judged by others as not good enough in some way, to be judged according to the flesh, we also know that we have done that ourselves, that we have judged others according to the flesh in Paul's words. And it's not just non-Christians that we might judge according to the flesh. We can judge brothers and sisters in Christ according to the flesh. And we see this great inconsistency in our own hearts. We hate being judged by outward appearances according to the flesh. And yet we find in our own hearts we do that to others. We so quickly determine that someone is not so good. You know, it's so easy, right, to... Look at our relative strengths as individuals and see others who are not so strong in those areas and say, oh, this person, they're not good enough. And maybe it's not so conscious, and yet we are quick to excuse our own relative weaknesses when compared to others. And so again, we see this inconsistency in our own hearts of judging others according to the flesh. And so we're called by God, right, to, to really not just judge according to the world standards, but to look to the heart, to actually take time to know people. And Paul, again, is seeking to point people to live in this way that God calls them to. So we see the context of which Paul was dealing with, but we also see him move on to say this, that now he's not compelled to live according to the world standards, but he's compelled to live for Christ. So in this next section, verses 13, 14, 15, we, we see Paul talking about what compels him. And I, love, and I love this verse. Verse 14 says, For the love of Christ controls us. Now, it's, uh, many other translations also use, uh, translate the Greek word control. And sometimes it doesn't sit well with us in our culture today. The version that I memorized a long time ago was NIV, For Christ's love compels us. New Revised Standard Version says, for Christ's love urges us on. I like, those, I like those translations better, only in that it doesn't stir up this noise in my head of control as in a negative kind of way. But Paul, what Paul is really saying, right, that God's love is so defining to us that it influences everything that we do, every decision that we make, so much so it is like it controls us. But I think, again, given our culture today, I think the translations of God's love compels us and urges us, I think, are, are, are closer to the meaning of what God, God really intends for us. And so God, again, urges us not to live for ourselves, not to live for fear of being judged by the world's standards, but to live compelled by God's love for us, compelled by God's call to live for him and for the sake of others. Now we have to ask the question, and Paul is trying to say this, what is so compelling about God's love? What is so compelling about what God has done? And I love that Paul says, he says, and it's just a little phrase in there, we have concluded this, and he goes on to describe the work of Christ. You know, Paul in his writings, he's not afraid to share about ecstatic spiritual experiences that he's had with God. And yet at the same time, 
he says Christians need to be thoughtful in their faith. They need to be given reasons for their faith. Again, he talks about the stumbling block that the gospel is to Jews and the foolishness that the gospel is to Greeks. And he knows that Christians need a foundation also of being given reason for their faith, evidence for their faith. And he proclaims this message of the historical Jesus who lived and died and was raised from the dead for our sake. These early church Christians believed Jesus to be real, believed Jesus to be fully God, fully man, believed Jesus to actually raise from the dead. And Paul says, this is what we, the early church, have concluded. What Jesus done is true and trustworthy and shows the love of God for us. And that is what compels us. And so we're in Lent, right? Let not Lent be just another year where we're like, yeah, yeah, Jesus, I believe in that. It's all good. (laughs) Let Lent be a time that we remember that we have very good reason to the evidence and reasons for faith that God loves us deeply, sent his son for us, died for us, was raised from the dead for us, It is through Christ that we find life and life to the full. And that is the love that compels us in this life. On Sunday, May 10th, 2015, not that long ago, a tornado of winds up to 125 miles per hour swept through Arkansas. And it touched down in Nashville, Arkansas. Rescue crews had to go through and discover what damage there was in that city. And the tornado had touched down in a mobile home park and there was one mobile home that just looked like it had exploded. And when the rescue crews went through the debris of this one home that looked like it exploded, what they found was two lifeless bodies of parents and an 18-year-old toddler alive in between underneath the parents who had given their life to protect the child when they barely had any time to do anything but to cover over their child to protect it. When the rescue crews, rescue crews came through, they obviously were shocked, emotional, and the child looked like it barely had a scratch on her, even though, again, the, de- the weight of the debris and the force of the debris took the life of her parents. Parents love their child so much that all they could think about was to do what they can to protect their child from dying. That is a beautiful and tragic picture of what God does for us. We like to think we're not in that much trouble. But I remembered myself this morning as I prayed and prepared that I am prone to self-destruct if I'm left to myself. Forget how I might hurt anyone else in my life. I am prone to self-destruct without God in my life. God protects us from the effects, from the guilt, from the consequences of the brokenness of this life. And he is willing and did give his life for us. That is why Christ's love compels us 
because the infinite almighty God would do that for us. Who do you live for? Who do you live for? Do you live for the approval of your parents? Do you live for the approval of your boss? Do you live for the approval of the people around you? Or do you live compelled by God's love? The God who would give his life for you. Don't judge yourself anymore by the world's standards. Don't judge anyone else by the world's standard. Look to Christ who makes us a new creation. Live no longer for yourself, but for Christ. So we've seen Paul take this journey with us. He says, we no longer judge ourselves or others according to the ways of the world. Christ's love compels us. Compels us to do what? What is our life calling because of what God has done? And he says, quite simply, engage in the ministry of reconciliation. Let the reconciled be reconcilers. Let the reconciled be reconcilers. Paul is the only New Testament writer who uses the Greek noun reconciliation and the Greek verb reconcile. It is clearly important to him, the apostle who was Jewish thoroughly in his heart and practice before he became a Christian and yet knew he was called by God to bring the gospel to non-Jews. He knew that reconciliation with God was vital but that God longed to bring people together through that reconciliation as well. In verse 20, Paul says, be reconciled to God. And it's important to know that that it's the passive voice in which he says, be reconciled. To recognize that it's not within our own power to reconcile ourselves to God. That it is God who initiates the reconciliation. It is God who does the work of reconciliation. It is God who has achieved it. We must simply accept that reconciliation and that work. And in Paul's time, it was in contrast with the worship of Greek gods who were fickle and capricious. And Greeks had to appease those Greek gods. It was in contrast to the way the Jewish faith was being practiced where there was so much of an emphasis of bringing the sacrifices and the offerings to God, thinking that they were the ones reconciling themselves with God. The gospel says no to both. And we have versions of that galore in our time today. The gospel says in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. It's always been God's pursuit of humans. After Adam and Eve's choice brought sin into the world, humans are born separated from God in this world. And need reconciling with God because of our sin. But God has made it clearer than ever through Christ. That it is he, God himself, who reconciles us to him. Again, in the Jewish faith, the worshiper brings his sacrifices and offerings. In the Christian faith, God brings Christ the sacrifice for us. He made him to be sin who had no sin. And so the application of this is simple and Paul makes it clear. Let us engage in the ministry of reconciliation. Let the reconciled be reconcilers. If we are truly reconciled with God, 
then we must appeal to others to be reconciled to God. If we are reconciled to God, then we must reconcile with others as well. Both things are true. Yes, we must, with our words, speak the message of Christ's gospel to the world. We must find ways to implore our friends and our family, be reconciled to God. Return to God. Without God, you are separated from relationship. Be restored in a relationship with him. It's, it's evangelism, right? He's talking about evangelism, which, again, in our culture today is like a dirty word. It's like we're forcing people to, to convert. It's like we're imposing our values on others. It's colonization. Hey, I grew up in a British colony. It was a long time ago, colonial days here in America. I grew up in it. And these are the ideas that we're told. And yes, the church needs to explore the sin historically and now and how evangelism has been done poorly back then and now. But it doesn't change the message of what God has said here in Scripture. In its essence, evangelism is reconciliation work. That's what it says here. We are ambassadors of God. God makes his appeal through us. We are the righteousness of God. I mean, these are shocking words to be told. God, I can't be your ambassador. I'm not good enough to represent you. I can't, you can't appeal through me. I'm just a broken vessel. I can't be your righteousness. I'm clearly not very righteous. But God says, you are covered with Christ's righteousness. And I will make my appeal through you a broken vessel, yes. But may the power and glory of God be made clear. We are called to be a part of God's reconciling work with the world. To implore those we love with our words. Be reconciled to God. Do we need to be sensitive? Yes. Do we need to be knowledgeable about our culture? Yes. Do we need to be persistent? Yes. Do we need to be courageous? Yes. The call to reconcile man to God is still there. But reconciliation can't just be words. We can't as Christians just call out reconciliation to God and have no intention of living it out in our lives. Relationships are hard. All relationships are hard, other than the most superficial. There are some in here that know, I need to reconcile with my spouse. We're struggling. There are those of you in here who know, I have a friend or a family member that I haven't tried to reconcile with in years and years and years. And I've just cut them off, considered them dead, basically. God says, let the reconciled be reconcilers. God says, Jesus himself says, by this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Love must seek reconciliation. 
Note I said seek, right? Because reconciliation always involves at least two parties. You can't make someone reconcile with you, but you can seek it. Your conscience can be clear before God that you sought it with some person, whether it's because you sinned against them or they sinned against you. If Christ's love compels us, then love must seek reconciliation. What about racial reconciliation? People nervous that I said it? I know it's politically charged in America. But I just have to say frankly, as a non-white person, to me it's, duh, we need racial reconciliation. It just seems very obvious. And in all the different parts of the world that I've lived in, all of those places needed racial reconciliation. And in some ways, even worse, I saw in my own hometown, tribal reconciliation was needed. Hong Kong Chinese hating on mainland Chinese. Mainland Chinese hating on Hong Kong Chinese. We couldn't even get along with our own people. We found ways to be tribal over our own people. That history, for us, goes back 100 years. Racial reconciliation history in America goes back four, five hundred years. It's complicated. It's politically charged. But as Christians, we can't turn a blind eye to it. Because we've been reconciled to God. And God says, let the reconciled be reconcilers. Let us not judge people anymore according to the flesh. And we can do this because we are a new creation in Christ. We can do this because our brother and sister of a different race is a new creation in Christ. We can do this because even if they don't know Christ, that they can be a new creation in Christ. And we can do this because this is God's heart to make all people of all nations one in Christ, reconciled to him and to one another. This Lent, let the reconciled be reconcilers, for Christ's love compels us. Let's pray. Lord, we need to embody 